Welcome back to Beers and Careers. I'm your host, Mark Augustinelli, and as always, Beers and Careers is brought to you by the Davis Companies, www.davisco's.com. That's D-A-V-I-S-C-O-S.com. Um, today's guest is Linda Wertheimer. Uh, Linda shares her very cool story of how really she became infatuated um, with journalism and over her career um, has worked in a lot of major metros for some big newspapers, Boston Globe. Uh, Dallas Morning News, Orlando, Orlando Sentinel, um, etc. Um, and then she started to uh, kind of move into the magazine longer form and then eventually um, has written a book. She talks about her process of writing books and um, how difficult it is um, to go through that journey. So uh, pretty cool story. Um, definitely a different one for us. So check it out. Love to hear what you think. Linda, thank you so much for uh, for coming on Beers and Careers. Um, audience and, and uh, our guest this week is uh, Linda Wertheimer, who is a, I mean, author, journalist, speaker. Um, Linda and I were connected by a, a mutual connection, so we haven't met in the past, which um, kind of is becoming my favorite way to do podcasts because I generally like listening to people and what they have to say. So, Linda, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And my career is all about meeting and talking to strangers. So, hey. <laughs> I know. Exactly. I, I saw that. So before we dive into it, we do a little rapid fire session just to let the audience um, get, okay. get to know our guests. So if you don't mind indulging with us, what what is your favorite cocktail or drink? Mojitos. Oh, awesome. I think you might be the first mojito guest. too. Which is <laughs> I cool. love mojitos and New England is not the best place in the world to get them. I, I lived in Texas for six years, and, yeah, they're really good down in Texas and Florida. What was Texas uh, – was your time in Texas where the uh, – where your uh, new love of mojitos was founded? Texas, yes, it was. Yeah. It was actually at my farewell party. Mm. <laughs> so, and it's they fun. said, you got to try this, and they ordered a pitcher of mojitos. And I was like, ah, really good with the mint and sugar cane. It's yeah. a perfect way to start a podcast on a Friday with a mojito, a pitcher of <laughs> mojito. Um, do you have a favorite curse word? Yes. <laughs> and, my, and my son is like, Mom, don't say that. It's, yeah. And I, 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 I'll just tell you it's the F word. Yep. I'm with you. It's, uh, <laughs> just, so you just so you know to make, to make you feel comfortable, you're in great company. That's the number one favorite <laughs> curse word thus far on the podcast. <laughs> Um, I played high school basketball. It came naturally. (laughs) (laughs) Under my breath, of course. Yes, all the time. All the time. Right, Uh, right, right. (laughs) Any any favorite guilty pleasures? Oh, wow. Guilty pleasures. That would have to do with food, I'm pretty sure. Mm. Um, Hmm. Believe it or not, these days it's uh, donning my mask and going to H Mart in Burlington and getting – a Thai iced tea with Bubba. What can I say? <laughs> I like it. Hey, hey, it works. It works. Um, I'm going to guess based on your career, writing uh, as a journalist, uh, as well as a, an author, you're into quotes. Do you have a favorite quote? Yeah, it's on my wall. Okay. Should I read it to you? Yes, please. I'd love to <laughs> um, yeah, it's when you take a flower in your hand and really look at it, it's your world for the moment. I want to give that world to someone else. Mm. And that is by Georgia O'Keefe, the artist. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. That's phenomenal. What and what what resonates about that the most with you? So 
I think that I can translate that pretty easily to the to what I hope to accomplish as a writer and a journalist that, you know, we all have a lens in the way that we look at the world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I want to look at the world, but then I want to share with others what I'm discovering Mm. kind of thing. So I I, I want you know, I want to share the beauty of the world with others, which is what George O'Keefe does. But I also want to share the problems and things that you can make a difference with, too. 100%. I must admit, I was really excited to talk to you today when I saw that um, some of your work and your book, uh, you know, revolves around religion and education. I I I was uh, able and benefited to uh, benefited from the opportunity to go to a Catholic high school. And it's interesting, one of the um, theology classes, I don't know if it was freshman or sophomore year, I think it was freshman year, like one of the first classes, taught you about worldview. And I remember uh-huh. being like, I remember sitting in that class or going home that day being like, man, I really never contemplated how other people would be looking at things differently, you know, as a 14-year-old boy at the time. So that resonates with me, your your um, your quote and the way it resonates with you just ties it all that's what i thought of when you said it so oh yeah yeah no i i have heard that catholic schools are actually ahead of the game when it comes to teaching comparative religions and talking about world religions at least in the more modern times yes i um i will say I, i so i also went to a catholic college not really by design i must admit i got recruited to play lacrosse in college and uh that was more of the focus i i really went I followed the coach more than I went to the school. And, and I mean, I love the school. What school was it? I went to St. Michael's College up in Vermont. Oh, okay. And um, and my friends and I, uh, most of us were business or history majors, but we all share the same favorite class um, taught by Robert Lair, which was basically the world's religions. And oh, that's you, great. And you learned every single religion. You went through all the majors uh, over the wow. course of the semester. And I think he was he never told the class what he was because he didn't want to influence um, how we thought about it. But I'm pretty sure he was a Buddhist man. And uh, it was a really it was it was um, it was just such a cool class because you looked at things through a totally different lens. So uh, yeah. that's kind of my anecdote on your Catholic school comment there. But. Funny how you get there. Funny how yeah. you get there. Um, lastly, on the rapid fire round, what was your first job? You mean first job any any yeah. time? Yeah, first time um, you received money for work. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So Not your lemonade stand. Lemonade stand doesn't. Okay, work. well, there was certainly babysitting the the little baby down the street. <laughs> no yeah. joke. When I was like twelve or thirteen. And then also sharing a babysitting job with my brother, who was two years older, and we babysit three kids after school. And then sort of the next sort of real job was working in a Kmart cafeteria. Okay. And I remember that because I kept breaking their glass coffee pots. (laughs) (laughs) I was really bad at it. That's what I remember. I was just awful at it. Yeah. (laughs) Now, where now where along the way did. um the desire to become a reporter, writer. I mean, you, it looked like from your LinkedIn, you started your career in the newspaper industry. Yeah. So, so it's not like I was born wanting to be a journalist and I didn't, yeah. I actually knew no one who was a journalist growing up. Okay. Um, it really didn't happen. I, so I took 
So I wanted to be a classical flutist first, seriously. Cool. Um, I, I played flute in school and was like always first chair in band, but went to a really tiny school system. So I wasn't going to be able to make it. Make it. Okay. Um, well, when I did get into Interlochen, I'm like, Interlochen was this famous summer music camp. I'm like, I don't have a chance of being the next James Galway or Jean-Pierre Rompal. <laughs> they were like famous classical flutists. Um, so I, I think I got the bug. Um, we had a high school journalism class in my tiny high school in Van Buren, Ohio. Honestly, the teacher knew really nothing about journalism. Oh. And I think the first thing I wrote was an editorial on Thanksgiving oh. and how wonderful Thanksgiving was. So I had no reporting skills at the time. And we printed off our our school had you know no budget or anything. We printed off this paper on the copy machine in the office. You know, I mean, it was like. Like, you know, it looked kind of like this with some pictures. Yeah. But um, um, and I'm holding up a piece of paper. I realize that I'm talking on a podcast. So okay. Nobody's going to see that piece of paper. Uh, so I kind of got the bug. And then I think it was the journalism advisor handed handed me a pamphlet about a journalism camp at Northwestern. And I went there the summer after. It was the summer of my after my junior year of high school. And then there was no turning back because in that in those six weeks, I learned how to be a reporter Mm. and and they even said, and this is going to be kind of eerie. I think I'm a little bit older than you, but we they simulated a news story and it was a an explosion of a space shuttle. This was in 1981. So this was before the famous 1986 Challenger accident. Mm. And they had a news conference. There were real journalists in this program. And so I totally got the bug that, so that was right before I was to enter my senior year of high school. And, okay. and, and so like, I didn't turn back after that, that I knew that I wanted to do this. I wanted to in, be out there interviewing people, writing stories. And I also thought I want to make a difference somehow. And this was a good way to, I, I knew, I knew about Watergate, mm. you, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. oh my God. Okay. I, I, Although I am a little younger, I, I consider myself like somewhat uh, worldly <laughs> enough to know about those things. Like I knew about Christy McCullough on the Challenger and uh, I certainly know Watergate. So Yeah. So Watergate, I was in elementary school when that happened. OK, but I grew. But the movie All the President's Men mm-hmm. would have come out probably when I was junior high age. Okay. And so I knew about Woodward and Bernstein and and there is a whole generation of journalists who who were struck by that, that you could, you know, basically take a president down or that you could expose great wrongs through journalism and and just the power of the press. And the and to me, I was the beginning of my career. I mean, always, but very intrigued by this idea. I can be a public watchdog. Mm, like the steward of truth, really, for the public. Yeah. 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 So I, I was, I think when, you know, when I initially went into it, I was very news driven, investigative driven, you know, want to shake up things kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I saw some of that in your background and then, and then it, and then you, it looks like that, I mean, you were at the Globe for a number of years and then it looks like you kind of went the slant of education reporting. I mean, it sounds that happened earlier, right? At yeah. Orlando. But how did so you've lived in a lot of places. That's like one thing I guess <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you about. But like, but yeah. That? So so there's a number of reasons for that. But so 
um, in order to progress in journalism, yeah, you usually move to bigger and bigger places. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I would say, you know, so I was at the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle in New York for four years. Then I went to the Orlando Sentinel in Florida, was there three and a half years, was very happy there, wanted to work in Boston still. A friend of mine from the Dallas paper who I knew through education writing circles said, we have an opening. You should apply for it. And I was like, I don't really want to live in Texas. I don't want to live in Dallas. OK, I'll apply for it. Yeah. And I applied for it and I got it. Um, and I ended up staying there six years, still wanting to work in Boston because I had family out here. Okay. And then heard about the opening for an assistant city editor over education at the Globe. And it's like, I don't want to be an editor, but I really want to work at the Globe. Well, maybe it would be interesting. So I and then I just said, you know, I might really enjoy leading coverage. It's a different way of making a difference. Mm. You're making the difference by supervising a team and having them, you know, you're helping to shape coverage for a whole group rather than just you. So I did that for I was at the Globe for six years and I was editor in that editing stint for about four to five years, went back into reporting and then took a buyout and then my career started to shift a little bit. Yeah, and so and so then it shifts to like talk me through the shift. Where where do you go? Yeah, from so I mean like so I think the shift. So to back up a little bit in the Boston story. So I yeah. did like the Globe, but in 2006 I got married fairly late in my career. I'd already worked full time as a journalist for like 20 almost 25 years at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I was older, <laughs> got married. And then in 2008, we had my son. We had our son. And the my editing job was very um, high stress, long, long hours. You know, I could be there till midnight or two in the morning. Sometimes I was always beholden mm-hmm. to when my reporters could turn the stories. And you could tell someone you got to turn the story in at six, but they may not get it to you till nine. Sometimes I had to wait for the other editors to read it. So I took a year off when I had my son and they let me do that. Not paid, of course. And that gave me a long time to think about what do I really want to do? And I also during that time, like my favorite editor who hired me at the Globe went to New York Times. Mm -hmm. Um, Marty Barron was on his way out to the Washington Post and he had hired me. So there were, there was a lot of changes happening at the Globe at the same time too. So it was a good time if I was going to make a decision yes. to make it. And then I had agreed to come back part time initially, did that, and then they were offering buyouts. Okay. So while, while I was on maternity leave, I started taking some classes at Grub Street in Boston and going to some of their things. I don't and know Grub. I don't know Grub. Yeah. So Grub Street is for adult students, though they do have some programs for teens. And what it is, is it is a writing program and they teach everything from writing book proposals to fiction, nonfiction. It's like a whole mix. Okay. And I started going to some of their things and I knew I really wanted to write books. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought about what did I really, really want to do? And I was like, you know, and I had a book I've been working on for a long time, not the one that got published first. That's always the way. And <laughs> so I took some, I was working on a memoir and I, um, well, and, and I think it's full school, you know, I was working in memoir about losing my brother mm. and getting close. Well, at that time it was just, I think it was, when was that? 2008? Yeah, no, I was working. It was about losing my brother 
and getting closer to my Jewish faith. I'd kind of originally it was just about sibling loss and expand it. And so I wanted to get some advice on writing that. Um, then what? Yes. So I I was getting very attracted to the idea of freelancing, writing longer form pieces. Yes. Than I would get to do in the newspaper, like you know, writing magazine pieces. I also started dabbling for the first time in writing some commentaries, oh, which was right. new for me. That was totally new for me. I'd never done that when I was at the newspapers. And I worked on my memoir um, and I said, you know, I really, really want to write books. And, you know, so I took that buyout and then I took a course on how to write a nonfiction book. Well, it was called Finding Your Book. And in that class, and I know your listeners can't see this, but in that class, Faith Ed was born. My, my book was born. Um, and I would say that. So the shift really happens when I was on maternity leave, which, I'll, you know, and that's going to sound. Sort of of, yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of self-reflection time. Well, yeah, I had self-reflection time. I had worked so hard mm. for, you know, from the time I was really 16 is when I started working from newspapers. Yeah. And I had worked so many hours. I'd given up weekends and nights, um, traveled a lot. I didn't. um you know, I covered the 9-11 attacks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, not right when it happened, but, you know, I did. I covered the not the Space Challenger explosion, but I would later cover the Columbia explosion over Texas. Mm-hmm. And I was one of many reporters doing that. But like I, I felt like other than winning Pulitzer, which, of course, I would have loved to do who win it. I had done what you would do if you wanted to be in at a big time newspaper. You know, I felt I had been there when the big stories broke. Do you I had covering those big stories also like the gravity of those stories and the intensity of them wear on you. I know you're ed- like the editing job or uh, like yeah. you think all that is a different kind of wear. But right. Like the content, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, I was not. So normally I was an education beat reporter. But as you get more senior in the field. It's all hands on deck, usually anyway, when a big story happens. But if you're more senior, you get to do more. Um, I would say not wearing on me, but that I didn't I felt like I wasn't leaving anything undone. You know, Mm -hmm. well, it was funny because like the Boston Marathon bombing happened in 2013. I left the globe in 2009 and I remember when it happened, my son was asleep. He was like a toddler and he was asleep. he had gone to the beach that day. It was a really beautiful, beautiful day. It was just gorgeous. So he went out to like, I don't know if it was Crange Beach or whatever. He was just totally asleep in the car. And then I turned on the radio and that's I think that's when I heard. And and I remember later, like someone said, didn't you want to suddenly like, you know, give your son to someone and go run downtown and start reporting? And I said, no, <laughs> and yeah. I was like, shocked. Yeah. You were done. No, you were done. I was. So so I knew I had made the right decision that because when I was working in the profession, I wanted to be a part of every single big story. I wanted to work every election night. I was all in. I mean, you know, yeah. I canceled dates. I, you know, like I, I mean, it was like I had it's drunk the problem. I drank the cooler. It was my total world and I loved it. And I have lifelong friends because of it. And I, that's the part I miss. Mm-hmm. And I, I miss the part of being, I miss the water cooler, you know? Yes. Yeah. So being on my own is very different, mm-hmm. but I don't miss 
the constant not knowing. Yes. Right. Yeah, I get that. There's to, you wanted to be a little bit more in control of your day to day. I did. And when you have a child, a young child, yeah. you know, and even now, you know, I have to show for him and stuff so I can. And, and but what I what I've done with my career, I feel like is I'm still totally excited by what I'm doing. Yes. And and I'm doing investigative type things, but it's more in book form. Mm-hmm. And like when I did Faith Ed, people didn't know about the stuff that was in my book. Most people did not know that there were public schools out there teaching about the world religions. Mm. They didn't know there had been a lot of outcry over lessons on Islam in particular. Mm. And they didn't know that it could actually work. <laughs> you know, so it was and, and they also didn't know my own story of what I had dealt with in terms of dealing with anti-Semitism growing up, which was mm. also a part of the book. And but it's a different thing. That's a different kind of thing than uncovering twenty five million dollars worth of building problems yes. in schools. And yes. that was a story. I did. So it's different. Mm. But it also can have a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also yeah. like, it's funny. I um, I'm drawing a correlation to uh, one of our recent guests talked about um, similar things. She had a very prominent job as a director of HR mm-hmm. at. Um, at a fortune 1000 company in the greater Boston area. And she, and she really made the move and it was almost like I'm putting words in her mouth now and I'm kind of doing the same for you, but it was yeah. almost like lifestyle design. It was like, no, 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 yes. this is what I want my life to be. And, yeah. and, and yeah. her, she talked about her husband doing it as well because of yeah. their children and just being like, no, I want to be home and I want to go to soccer and I want to do that. Yeah. Stuff. And, and, and I think, um, yeah. It's an interesting topic because I, I think a lot of people don't think you actually have the opportunity to design it, 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 that you're kind of taking it the other way. And you're another example of someone who's successful but said, no, 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 no. I want I want to kind of have it all and went out and did it to a degree it, from, my, from my vantage. Yeah, no. And so I'm making less financially yes. than I was at the newspaper. But I could have still supported myself, I think, had I left. But it would have been it would have been tougher. But because I'm married and have the advantage of that, you know, and he has a nine to five job, high tech, (laughs) that helps. It does does help. Um, But where was it? Yeah, it was a life. It was a lifestyle decision. But I also had had this ambition of wanting to write books. Mm. Um, And there, but there are journal plenty of examples of journalists who have stayed on the job and written books. Mm-hmm. Yes. No. I'm, but that's hard. I mean, a lot of them who've done it are some of the like the most prominent or yeah, or they could afford to do. I couldn't have afforded to do that when I was working at the Dallas paper. Yeah. OK. Interesting. Because, because isn't it, I mean, you kind of made a joke about it. The book you were working on early on wasn't the one that you ended up publishing. Right. Like, getting I don't even understand anything about that part of the business but from what i understand it is not easy it is it is totally not easy it's a real challenge and i love these people who've never written a word in their life who say you know when i retire i'm gonna write a book (laughs) and i'm like okay fine you think you might want to take a writing class first (laughs) you know um and there are people who do then do the writing class and they do it um but no it wasn't easy at all um i so my memoir, I originally wrote a draft of that. I would say I originally had a draft of that done in 2000 okay. that didn't mention anything about faith. Mm. And then I got the job at the Globe. I put it away. 
Um, I think I had tried to get a couple agents way back in 2000 because I had a, some pieces published out of it and got really like your writing, but we're not sure this would sell. Mm. And so I put it away. I took the great job at the globe and then I worked on it again after I did an adult bot mitzvah in my early forties. And then I rewrote the entire book <laughs> and oh hired a freelance editor who said, I think it's beautiful. I think you'll sell it. I couldn't get an agent. Okay. Um, then I took the finding your book class at Grub Street, which was taught by an agent. Okay. And then she's like, yeah, I think it's a great idea. I don't know if it's like a big five publisher book, but okay. she thought it might be more of an independent press book, like Beacon Press, which is actually a very well-known press that's published bestsellers. Right. But you can submit to them without an agent. And, and I knew, had met someone there at a writing conference who turned out oblivious me. She was not only an editor there, but the head of the publisher. Okay. <laughs> but I did not know this wow. at the time. I was like, Good oh, networking, she's networking, Linda. That is yeah, 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 that was like clueless networking. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, but I had her card and I was like, oh, I think I know. And I'd met her like I save business cards. Yeah. You know, it's like I do, which is most people don't even have Me. them anymore. Me too. I save them all. But I save them or I take pictures of them. And I'm like, oh, and I told this woman who taught my class, I'm like, yeah, I know this woman. I know the editor there. She's like, well, you should send her an email. Mm. She said, like, oh, I remember you. And I was like, it had been five years. No, no mm. joke. Since I met her, she said, come talk to me. And we talked for a couple hours and she loved the idea. Well, so I also shared my memoir with her, but she was more interested in my new book idea, which was the teaching about religion in schools idea. And we kept in touch. My son was still young. I wasn't quite ready to go travel, which my book called for. And then she called me a year later and said, you know, we're, we're compiling our fall list. What's going on with your book idea? Mm. And I was like, oh, well. Um. And so I worked on the proposal a little more, did a magazine piece related to it. And then I worked on it with her, actually. And she sold it. And then she, she was the editor. She made me an offer in a couple of weeks with mm. no agent. Mm. Um, so in a sense, my first book was sort of easy. Yes. It had, you know, but there's, there's sort of an interesting part to that story. There's a chapter in Faith Ed that comes from that memoir that I've never sold. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, but so, but to just get the book published, number one, that's really hard, right? So mm -hmm. I got that part. Um, the editing process actually went beautifully and like we met for lunch. She gave me the edit. She's like, why aren't you eating? I said, I'm too nervous. <laughs> you know, it's like, cause this is like, you know, editing my book. What's she going to say? Um, and gave her the revisions and she had no more suggestions. She's like, I think you nailed it. She felt like in the revisions, I got her comments. Well, we went through the fact checks and all that. And then came out it was not a bestseller but you know that's hard yes. i did get a new i did get a new york times review which was like a nice get and awesome. gave talks all over um but it's still but now i'm trying to work on my second book and what i would say is if your first book wasn't a bestseller it's hard to sell a second book mm. so exactly. yeah so i do have an agent now though okay. so that part's good but yeah and book publishing is really really hard don't quit your day job for it, so to speak. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to be kind of, you know, like I 
did freelance, you know, I still freelance articles and give talks and other ways to make money. And then I won a fellowship this year that's essentially a salary. So that helps. Um, Yeah, but book publishing, it's notoriously difficult. And you often hear these like incredible success stories. First novel, one million dollars. Okay, so then I have the friends who've written their novel and they probably sold 5000 copies and made ten thousand dollars if they were lucky. Yeah. You know, Yeah. so it's. It's like the majority of authors don't mm. probably make enough to live on by their books. I mean, I, I probably made more than my advance through public speaking and, and art related articles than I did from the actual book sales. And okay. even while the book has sold to some extent, I it was the public speaking gigs I got that really and the book was a vehicle for those public speakers. Well, exactly. So, yeah. And I um, I didn't end up, I would have loved to have been like picked up by a big speakers bureau. That, that didn't happen, but I just kept getting gigs. Yes. And, okay. and go ahead. I was going to say, when you speak, what, what, what tends to be the topic you speak on? Yeah. So I actually kind of created some templates. Like I did, I did get organized and created a flyer. Um, I tended to do like teaching about religion and polarizing times mm. was, often the topic of my talk. You were ahead of your time, by the way. I was. <laughs> I know. You Imagine if it had come out, like, even... T- my book came out in 2015. Right. I, think I, it, I just saw that, and I was like, man, she was, like, legitimately six years, or four and a half years early. Well, right. And then in 2016, right? And then it came out in paperback in 2016 and got a nice new bump. Mm-hmm. Um, I did get on, like, one major news show. Like, it was... It was, it was CNN with some new show with Ashley Banfield, who I, okay. I yeah. yeah. Um, but she was just had me on to do a spot about a particular news story about Bibles in the schools. So it wasn't. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So what happened with the talks? So um, I would get asked, I was asked by teachers, by social studies groups, by church groups and temple groups. I also would talk about the experiences of religious minorities. Mm in the schools, like our religious minority youth. Yeah. And then I had even another talk that I would give about um, dealing with anti-Semitism in my youth mm-hmm. and kind of what that taught me, you know, what I learned from that experience, what that says about, you know, separation of church and state, because that was also an issue in my school, public yeah. school in Ohio. Yeah. And, and also the, and how that drove me to write this book. So all those topics, ended up yeah I probably gave I would say between 2015 and maybe 2017 2018 even uh, I gave several hundred talks oh wow yeah and and then spoke at Chautauqua um which is a pretty well-known have you heard of Chautauqua in New York State it's an oh it's a very famous (laughs) well it was supposed to be famous it's a famous intellectual summer community on Lake Chautauqua in New York State Okay. And they've had, you know, and every year they have like this whole lineup of speakers. Like they've had Margaret Mead and oh. Michelle Obama. And and I was asked initially to be like a writer in residence. This part killed me when the pandemic hit. I was asked to give one of what they call the, one of the interfaith lectures mm. in this in the summer of 2020. <laughs> oh. And uh, in the Hall of Philosophy, which can ha- fit about 500 people and then there are people in the lawn and then they have you sign your books of course the whole thing went virtual right right oh 
Yeah. So that was, uh, yeah. But, but what was amazing about that, that's five years after my book was out. Right. Right. So, so it's really been something that you've leveraged beyond that. Like, uh, do you. Yeah. I've wait, given talks during the pandemic. Yeah. That, which is, which is, I got to think has been harder, right? It's harder to read an audience virtually. Yeah. So I, so Chautauqua had me do their talk virtually. Right. Yeah. And so it was a really kind of interesting setup. They had me tape my talk at a studio out in Marlboro. Okay. Um, and the guys wore masks. Um, this was, I believe, in the summer. Okay. And um, when we knew so little, right, we didn't right. know as much as we knew now. So I was pretty nervous just the fact that I was in a room with other people with masks on. Mm-hmm. I did not have my mask on, mm-hmm. that they were like 12 feet away. And okay. so they videoed me. I gave my talk, which they put on a teleprompter. Mm-hmm. And then the day of the talk, which was like probably four weeks later. Okay. Um, when it was going to show live, they show my talk and then they did a live Q&A between me and this Bishop Gene Robinson, who's like the head of the religion program at Chautauqua. Mm. And I could and we did it over Skype. Interesting. And then there were questions that would come and then he would ask me. I don't know to this day how many people were on that talk, which, you know, it's kind of hard for me to know. Okay. I have no idea if it sold any books. I don't think it sold many. Um, I mean, the selling the books. Sometimes isn't the point. I, mean, I did get paid for the talk. Um, I mean, it was a o- great honor to do it. It wasn't about the money. Um, well, sometimes it is. But it really wasn't because like for me, it was Chautauqua, which yeah. I was on to when I was a kid. And I heard Margaret Mead and someone else there was like extremely famous. So I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Yeah, it was like a, um, it was like a full circle event in your life. Yeah. And then but also like I don't I mean, I I should be better. But this is where I need to develop some business savvy. Right. I've had several teachers ask me to give talks to their classes and I don't always charge for that. But, the, but I also know that teachers don't always have a, they don't have a speaker budget. Right. And, you know, I know who really does. And then like, so I try to be understanding of that. Mm. And then I've spoken for the national council of social studies conventions like three times. So, okay. Yeah. So it's, it, yeah. It, um, have you changed? Have you like through the book was published in 2015? Yeah. Um, What's been like your vantage point on like, and I, I must admit, I haven't, I haven't read the book. I, I was looking into you and I saw you like take uh, field trips overseas. Um, and I like, I saw some, did I see that? Is that correct? No. Field Shit. trips overseas. No, I'm looking at, then I have the wrong, then I have the wrong thing. I, I saw, I thought you, you took folks to. Uh, no. No, then I'm wrong. Oh, that, what, a, no. what a, what a bummer that is. Yeah, no, there, there's a chapter called something like there's a chapter about field trips to a mosque in Roxbury. OK. Yeah. But no, yeah, no field so trips I, overseas. <laughs> I have my skis crossed. That's not that's not what I was. That's not. I was, okay. That's not what I was talking about. But I was interested to know, like, from your vantage point, have you seen any ripple effect on, like, the way book the book has affected educators over, you know, these five years? With So, I mean, the heart. So the the hardest thing to know is how many educators has it actually reached. Mm -hmm. Um, I do know that, you know, there were several hundred at my talk when I gave a big talk in 2018 at the National Council of Social Studies. Mm -hmm. And I know from some of the chatter with the teachers afterwards, they said it really opened their mind to a couple of things. And one was how it was possible for them to teach about religion without controversy. Mm -hmm. And the other one was to really listen more to the stories of the religious minority youths in their schools. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, I don't know of like whole scale school districts that bought the book for every teacher. That would be wonderful. I know of college professors who have used it in their classes. Okay. So that helps. I, I think where it can make some mo- most impact. So I know that like some education school professors have used it. Mm. So that can help because mm-hmm. that may give teachers a more comfort level to teach about religion in the schools, but then also to know where the lines are yes. and how to avoid getting in a big controversy, like by having kids try on a burqa, which happened. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Saw that. Yeah. So, you know, did it have like a super big national effect? I don't really know. I, mm. well, what I do know is that, you know, so I wrote, commentaries based off the book for like the Washington Post Mm -hmm. and NBC and Time and some other places. And so that has a way of getting out to people. Mm. And that and that led to some of the speaking gigs. I mean, there was one other thing I was trying to think of, like in terms of the effect. I also got invited to speak at the Harvard Divinity School at a conference on religion and education. Wow. And people came up to me (coughs) afterwards and said, that what was really interesting, everyone else was talking more theory and I was talking about what I had actually seen in the schools, Mm. what was happening and where the problems were, but where the successes were. So I think that that may in some ways be an even bigger impact when you reach scholars who are also doing this work and then they realize, oh yeah, you know, and they influence teachers too. So your story from like, for me, right, we've only, been talking here for about 50 minutes so that's as much as i know linda but like <laughs> it sounds like you just followed a passion for writing and like kind of followed your heart the whole way through your career yeah. and it kind of just kept working out a lot and like you're self-aware you you kind of self-deprecated being like i know i should have more business savvy and be yeah. charging for these things but i also like from the experience i've got i would say i i kind of see the other side of that being like you're not like super worried about nickel and diming people to death because as long as you continue to follow your your process, like it kind of keeps working out for you. Yeah, you know, I think that's true. I, I have definitely followed my heart. Yeah. And passion on the topics I write about. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I I mean, I now I think of myself, I'm, I'm probably a social justice journalist and my next yeah. book that I'm doing working on is about teaching about racism in the schools. And believe me, that's a mm-hmm. very prickly topic. And there'll be a whole swath of America that won't want to touch it. Yeah. You know, and I yes. know that yeah. it's, <laughs> and it's, it's um, I'm OK with that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't blame you. I, I think it's one of those things. I took down that tangent. <laughs> that's I OK. If you're I think what's interesting about your career is it applies to everyone's career. And what I mean by that is like. You said it. Everyone's like, when I'm going to retire, I'm going to write a book. But uh, like, what advice would you give for people if they were interested in publishing something a little bit more long form, whether it be, you know, uh, I mean, you're an insider to a degree. Like if, if right. you're Mark, I'm a total got, insider. <laughs> yeah. You know, like if I'm if I'm Mark Augustinelli, who's got a wealth of knowledge about the staffing yeah. industry and how to find jobs and, yeah. and how to how to gain your career. And I wanted to put that in a long form. Like what are some of the actionable steps that someone like me could take um, along the way? So first off, I would say if you're in the Boston area, check out Grub Street classes. Okay. But yeah. there's also the Cambridge Center for Adult Education. And there, there are a lot of programs. And of course, virtually there's t- even more where 
You can work on book proposals. You can work on your writing skills. I would establish a platform. So you have a platform, right, because of what you do professionally. But then you also need a writing platform. Mm. So I would. And also you have a podcast, which also gives you a platform. Right. but I would say also write articles, you know, write articles for business magazines, write op eds. You know, you okay. want you want to show people you can write something. Mm-hmm. So I think before you write a book, you want to publish some smaller things. Mm-hmm. And then you can work on a proposal at a place like Grub Street or someplace else. There's also books on how to write a nonfiction book proposal. But mm-hmm. the it, the advantage of linking up with some kind of writing center yeah. is that there's other writers there. You could form a group of writers. Um, it's a community and it's yeah. a, and, and it's a water cooler, <laughs> but, yeah. no, but, but also it's networking. Um, Grubs, there are many, I would go to writing conference. I would go to writing conference even before you write something because yeah. you can kind of learn about it. And, and I've spoken at the Grub street conferences. I volunteered there. I've just attended and there are people from every walk of life who go there. There are some people who have never written a word and they get inspired or they get ideas. Yes. And the, there's a virtual conference every year. And it's not the only one of its ilk in the country. Mm-hmm. But that, that's what I would say. I would say don't don't stay in your silo to do this. Yes. Immerse yourself in the, in the other culture. Right. Yeah. Yep. Take a class. Yeah. There's plenty of them out there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Linda, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story uh, I'll have to check out Faith Ed and kind of the I work hope you do <laughs> and uh, love to love to talk to you again when uh, the, when the next book is released. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. All Take right. care. Have a great have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Bye bye.